All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. On the show with me today, we have a special guest, Dr. John Putilio. Uh, Dr. Putilio practiced medicine as a pediatrician and allergist for more than 30 years. He began his practice in 1974 and retired in 2008. He holds certifications from the American Board of Pediatrics, the American Board of Allergy and Immunology, and the Canadian Board of Pediatrics. During his medical practice, John became interested in understanding the causes of and interconnections between hunger, satiation, and weight gain. His interests turned into a passion and a multi-decade personal study and research project that led him to read many medical journal articles medical textbooks, and other scholarly works in biology, biochemistry, physiology, endocrinology, and cellular metabolic functions. This eventually guided Dr. Putilio to investigate the theory of insulin resistance as it relates to diabetes. Recognizing that this theory was illogical, he spent a few years rethinking the biology between behind blood, uh, high blood sugar and finally developed the fatty acid burn switch as the real cause of diabetes. Dr. Putilio has written articles on hunger and satiation, weight loss, diabetes, and the senses of taste and smell. His articles have been published in medical journals such as Physiology and Behavior, Neuroscience and Biobehavioral Reviews, Journal of Applied Research, uh, I can keep going on and on. Um, his work has also been quoted in fitness, Red Book, and Woman's World. Uh, so Dr. Putilil, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mr. Bosco, for having me. Absolutely. So you, uh, you spent a lot of your, uh, the last, um, how long has it been since, since you originally sort of like discovered or, or came to the conclusion that this sort of insulin resistance theory of diabetes might not be correct? It's almost 20 years. So, so what, what sort of led you down like th that, and I guess that still is kind of the common uh, medical, uh, medically uh, established model of diabetes, um, that it's this the insulin resistance. What, what originally caused you to, to sort of question that or, or sort of to, to challenge that idea? It started with the fact that my relative had both her legs amputated in spite of keeping her blood sugar below A1C7, taking medications. Then during my practice, I found people who have had kidney disease, who developed Alzheimer's, who had heart problems, who had cancer, in spite of taking insulin and keeping the A1C below seven. So the question was, why is this happening? If you are giving the medication to keep the blood sugar down, why are you still having the same complications that you would have had otherwise? So what is the role of insulin? That is when I looked into the concept of type two diabetes and the theory called insulin resistance. Now, if you go and look in the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Disease website, you will see that 
type 2 diabetes. By the way, we are talking about type 2. In type 1, there is no insulin production. So that is not what we are talking about. We are talking about the previously called adult onset. Because type 1 happens in children mostly, type 2 in adults. So the National Institute will say type 2 diabetes begins, usually begins, when muscle, liver, and fat cells do not respond to insulin, the so-called insulin resistance theory. So that made me thinking, it does not make much sense. For example, we have 200 different types of cell in the body. Why only three suddenly decide we are going to resist insulin, we are not going to respond. What's the reason? Why only these three cells? Why, why 197 have no problem? And that too, why these three decide to not respond only to insulin? The body has so many other hormones. What's the reason? Why it is the same in a lean person, obese person, pregnant woman, and how does it go away after delivery or after weight loss? So this is what uh, started me on the thinking path. Right. And then how long did it, were you just spending years and years uh, sort of like researching different, different theories? Like how did you, uh, how did you eventually come across this, this fatty acid burn switch um, theory and what, what, what sort of led up to that um, discovery? Well, conclusion? the question was, diabetes means elevation of blood sugar or blood glucose. Most people mistake blood sugar to natural sugar. That, those are two different things. Natural sugar is sucrose, whereas blood sugar is glucose. So, who is the end user of glucose? 80% of the glucose that we consume during a meal is used by muscles. But suppose you are fasting on a day. You don't eat any food. You can still function. You're, you can run, you can play, you can jog, you can dance. Professional athletes even play basketball or games. Uh, if you are a Muslim, you are fasting the whole day on Ramadan, but you can still function. So muscles are not getting glucose. How are they functioning? That means the muscles are like a hybrid car. A hybrid car can function, generate energy from, glucose, from gasoline or electricity, one or the other. Muscles can use either fatty acid or glucose for energy. And this is a normal everyday physiological mechanism. Now, suppose we have a lot of fatty acid in the blood. Now, what you have to decide is how does the muscle know when to switch to fatty acid or when to use glucose? Most people may not realize this. Insulin is only a messenger. 
after a meal, when the blood sugar goes up, the pancreas releases insulin. Insulin goes with glucose to each and every cell in the body. When you have a visitor outside your home, he rings the doorbell, you know somebody is there. When glucose is outside the cell, the cell has no way of knowing. There's no receptor on the cell wall for glucose to ring the bell. That is the job of insulin. Insulin informs the cell there is glucose outside. That does not mean automatic entry. The cell, the nucleus of the cell, the gene in charge has to send a wagon to the door, open the door, load up the glucose molecules and bring it in. And if the muscle is functioning without letting glucose in, that means the muscle is getting free fatty acid. The cell wall is made of fatty acids and cholesterol. Fatty acids can wiggle into the muscle without having to go through this uh, messaging, messaging process. So muscle is getting free fuel. Why should it let glucose in? So is this, is this sort of the idea that you're talking about? There, there's a lot kind of in, in sort of popular uh, kind of uh, diet or nutrition books now about kind of the idea of metabolic flexibility right, being able to burn either fat or, or ketones um, for energy. Is this, the burning fatty acids is, is like the same idea, correct? Or am I? Yeah. It, it, it is similar. What I'm suggesting is it is a natural physiological phenomenon that is going on every day. Most of the energy we spend on a daily basis come from, comes from fatty acids. Because four hours after the meal, if you measure your blood glucose level, it will be high, depending on how much carbohydrate you consume. But then it goes down, which means that glucose has disappeared. Where did it go? Immediately after meal, insulin, as I said, will knock on the door on the wall of every cell. The cell picks up what it needs the leftover will come to the liver. Our liver will convert the excess glucose into fatty acid to be stored in fat cells as fat. Okay. So the liver keeps 120 grams, only 120 grams for backup. If your blood glucose level goes down, it releases the glucose to keep up a steady supply of glucose needed for our brain. Our neurons preferentially use glucose, even though they can use a ketone called acetone, most of what they like is glucose. So the liver will keep supplying, but the muscles can use fatty acid. So this is similar to the fatty acid burn that happens almost every day. Okay. Then, so for the muscles, you're saying that the fatty acids are actually are they a more efficient fuel source than glucose? It is not any more efficient. Muscles don't care. They okay. can use either one interchangeably. Okay. So why would, why would you want um, to, 
have your muscles burning, uh, burning the fatty acids instead of glucose, what, what is the advantage there? There, there is no advantage. The, the, what is happening is there's an abundance of glucose, uh, fatty acid in the blood. So the question is, how does that happen? So muscles don't have to spend any energy to send the wagon, load up the glucose and bring it in because it already has free fuel. I inside. see. Okay. Okay. And is this something, so are you a fan of uh, like say intermittent fasting or, or longer fasting? That, that is a different approach. The question then, that all came about when how to lose weight. And it, when as an adult, when you gain weight, what does that mean? That means you are storing excess energy containing foods that you consumed as fat. After age 35, almost all your weight gain is fat deposition. Not muscle mass, not bone density, because they are all going down. So even if you maintain the same weight, you are replacing muscle because you are losing muscle mass when your hormone level goes down, but you are maintaining the weight, you are adding fat. So that is what is going on in the body. So fatty acids are there to supply the muscles. Okay. So, so walk me through what happens, you know, with, uh, with, you know, say type two diabetes, it, do you, so is it like along with sort of the insulin resistance, you know, people say it's kind of like, uh, you know, the overconsumption of carbohydrates that's kind of constantly telling our, our pancreas to pump out insulin from, from my understanding. Is that, do you attribute uh, a lot of that to excess carbohydrate consumption? Well, in the modern diet, let me ask you this question. When is the last time you had a meal or a snack without a grain flour product? Yeah, might've been a little while. A <laughs> uh, hundred years ago, only 35% of daily energy, food energy intake came from carbohydrates. After the agricultural revolution, every government in the world is subsidizing grain farming one way or another. We are subsidizing, we are giving $25 billion every year for farming, and most of it goes to grain farming. If you look at the cheapest food available, most convenient prepackaged foods available, most of that is made of, are made of grains. Now, what happens to all these grains, the, the percentage of energy consumed during a day is 50 to 70%, 50 to 70% compared to what it was when it was 35%, so almost double. And all that glucose that is absorbed after each meal will be converted into fat. Then it depends on what is your fat storage capacity. Now, there is no 
type 2 diabetic gene. You don't, in, if you have a family history, that doesn't mean you have inherited a gene. If you had inherited a gene, that gene is in your body from day one of your life. Why did it wait until you are age 60 to have diabetes? You should have started at a younger age. It does not. If you have no family history of diabetes, you become pregnant and you develop gestational diabetes. Why? In this country, 80% of type 2 diabetics are obese. In India, 60% are not obese. So how can they become diabetic? What I'm suggesting is, it is what you're inheriting is not a diabetic gene. What you're inheriting is your fat storage capacity. Suppose you have a refrigerator which, call, which is 10 cubic feet and your neighbor has 20. The neighbor can store more food inside. If you buy the same amount, half of your food will be outside. So when you are a pregnant woman, you are encouraged to eat for two people. And you eat and you eat, you fill up your fat storage capacity. The fatty acids, the liver converts the uh, glucose into fatty acid. Muscles burn the fatty acid, leave the glucose in the blood. You are gestationally diabetic. After delivery, when you lose weight, you have emptied out your fat store. Now you can keep that fatty acid as fat in your blood, uh, fat in your fat, cell, uh, fat cells and your blood glucose level goes down, your diabetes magically went away. When you lose weight, the same thing happens. So this is what I'm suggesting. So, so we have different capacities, the, the fat storage capacity. So you're saying like for, for one individual, they may be able to kind of still be able to maintain kind of healthy blood sugar even at storing more fat, whereas someone else might not have that, that same capacity. And if they, even, even if they're not obese, they could still develop type two diabetes. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes, you did correctly. And also look at some obese, grossly obese people with normal blood sugar. Looking at them, you could say, oh, he must be diabetic because he weighs three, 300 pounds. I had two patients that I counseled. Both were 300 pounds weight. And one had normal blood sugar, normal blood pressure, normal uh, cholesterol. The other was on two diabetic medications and his doctor was telling him you should go on insulin. Both 300 pounds. So it all depends on your fat storage capacity. If you can keep it inside the fat cell, you're fine. Is there any way, are we able to measure this, the, the, the fat storage capacity? Is there like a blood test or are we able to see that or not yet in humans? No, well, that's an excellent question. We have no way of measuring the storage capacity, but there are clues. Everybody, if you're doing an yearly blood test, there is a measurement of triglyceride. That is the name of the fat. Tri means three, me uh, three molecules of fatty acid with one molecule of glycerol. 
okay? So the liver produces fatty acid from glucose. It is tied to a glycerol, and that's the fat that is sent to the fat cells for storage. If you keep tracking the triglyceride level year after year, it will start going up way before your blood glucose level goes up. Unfortunately, we don't have a method of measuring the fatty acid level, but we can track the triglyceride level. I see, okay. So the answer then, as far as uh, for type two diabetes, is it is it usually a case of weight loss? Or like, is the primary goal um, to lose weight and I guess reduce kind of the, the fat storage, or is it more so focusing on just not, uh, not causing the pancreas to have to, to deal with all the, the incoming carbohydrates and specifically grains that you're talking about? Let, let me answer it this way. You give somebody a shot of insulin, their blood glucose level goes down. Where does it go? It does not go out of the body. What the insulin does is instruct the liver to convert that glucose into fat. So the blood glucose level goes down, but how are you going to benefit from it in the long term? So, but we are all concentrating on numbers. Oh, I can keep your A1C below seven, as if that magically that takes care of everything. My friend who was, had a PhD in organic chemistry, for 20 years, he kept his A1C down below seven using insulin because he was allowed to adjust his dosage. When I met him, he was taking 120 grams of ins, uh, units of insulin a day in, in different long-acting, short-acting, this and that. It did not stop him from having to have three of his toes amputated. It did not stop him from having two types of cancer. And two years ago, he passed away. So, and as I said, I have relatives who lost legs, relatives who became, who, who developed Alzheimer's, who had heart problems. If insulin saves uh, controls this disease, why is that happening? We need to ask answers. What is the proof of insulin resistance theory? In any science, once somebody proposes a hypothesis, before it is accepted as fact, you have to go through a validation process. There are three steps. One is, does it make sense? And as I mentioned earlier, out of 200 different types of cells, only three are affected. What, how does that, how is that possible? Second, is there a mechanism? For example, the liver fat and muscle cells are resisting insulin. Is it the receptor is not sending the message? Is the gene incapacitated? or is there is a transportation problem or is this exactly the same defect in each cell we don't know 
Nobody knows what is the defect in any one of these sites. Third, you need to have a measurement. You need to be able to measure the degree of insulin resistance at any one of these sites. We don't. So it does not pass the judgment of normal scientific validation. So what's, what's your take on why, why has it been so accepted within the, the medical establishment? Why, why haven't people been pushing for more of this or, or challenging these ideas since, I mean, it seems like type two diabetes is such a rampant issue and clearly the, the treatments that they're, they're currently doing aren't, aren't working. Um, that's a, that is the best question that we need to ask the endocrinologists. In 1920, insulin was discovered, and that was a lifesaver for children with type 1 diabetes. Because before insulin discovery, they used to die by age 10. After insulin, their life became normal almost. Now, the in type 1 diabetes, the blood sugar level is high. And type 1 diabetes is an endocrine disease because pancreas is not producing insulin. So when adults showed up with high blood sugar, naturally they went to endocrinologists because they are efficient or proficient in reducing blood sugar. When, give, when the children are given insulin, their blood sugar went down, their life improved, lifespan extend. So they thought it is the same problem happening at an older age and this is why it was called adult onset diabetes. So they gave insulin and sure enough the blood sugar went down. So every, everybody thought oh this is fine. Later when a test became av available to measure the insulin level in the blood to their surprise, they found when you are diagnosed, first diagnosed type 2 diabetes, your blood insulin level may be normal or even above normal. So they thought, oh, maybe something wrong with the insulin molecule. But if you take insulin from a type 2 diabetic, inject it into somebody else, their blood sugar will go down. That means functionally, structurally, it is normal. So the endocrinologist had two options. One is to say, perhaps this is not an endocrine disease, but that means you are losing a lot of your patients, right? So one person, 1940, in Vienna, William Falta, he thought, perhaps the problem is not insulin, but the cell is not responding. And endocrinologists did not need any more they just evidence. That. <laughs> they had an outlet, an escape route. That's all they needed. And if you talk about something long and loud, if you keep talking, it becomes accepted. And then you add some scientific equations and medical theories. And if nobody else has an ability to question that, that becomes the no. When I ask, uh, I send an article to 50 different endocrinologists. 
when I first published an article. 49 of them did not respond. One said, oh, we are going to have evidence of insulin resistance very soon. Admitting that we don't, we don't yet. <laughs> and that is still the same. They are doing a lot of research. Recently, I asked some, the same question. And they said, oh, we have found some new molecules that could explain insulin resistance. So we are still in the same boat. Right. They're what still holding on. I guess people like you and people like your audience or our audience asking questions. I'm not selling anything. I don't have any product or medications. All I am asking is, asking the endocrinologist is prove me wrong. You can prove yourself right by proving me wrong or other way. You can prove me wrong by proving the fact regarding insulin resistance. That's all right. I'm asking. Let's talk about what's the role of, of exercise when it comes into all of this and, and the burning glucose and fatty acids. Uh, how, how important is that in your view of type two diabetes? Exercise is important, whether you are a diabetic or not, whether you are obese or not, it doesn't matter. The role of exercise is to condition your heart, your lungs, your muscles. What does that mean? That means if you are a conditioned individual, you can bring in more air with less number of breaths. Okay, that means your lungs are more efficient. So if you have pneumonia or um, infection in the lung, you have plenty good reserve capacity to survive that. The same with heart. A, a conditioned athlete will lose, uh, will use less heartbeat because per beat he is putting out more volume. So Functionally, the heart may last longer. The same with muscles. If you, if you suddenly have to run away because of a danger, a conditioned athlete can run faster and longer and survive. So this is the advantage of exercise. It should not be used for weight loss purposes. Now, all you have to do is think about all the elderly people in nursing homes. They are not exercising any, but are they gaining weight? Uh, can you repeat the question? Uh, elderly people in nursing homes, they hardly exercise as they did before, but they are not continuously gaining weight. That means you don't need exercise to keep your weight under control. You, you, if you look at, they don't, they don't keep gaining weight because their intake has gone down proportional to the reduced demand for energy. As we get older, the same activity takes longer to finish. Whatever type of work, physical work you're doing, 
because we cannot generate the same amount of energy in the same amount of time. Just to give you an example, how many 40 and 50 year old athletes do you see out there? You cannot compete with a 20 year old. So that is what is happening. You tend to spend less and less energy, but by that time you are used to a certain way of eating. You are conditioned yourself. When you are hungry, you put the same amount of food on your plate. Once you put it on the plate, you are going to finish. Right. <laughs> Let's talk, what's your, are you a fan of the, the ketogenic diet? I have nothing against it. If you can survive it, if you can tolerate it, that is fine with me. It doesn't matter. What I'm concerned about is the overconsumption of grains. If we can cut that down to 50% of what we are consuming right now, we can avoid a lot of obesity, type 2 diabetes, and even cancer. You don't have to join an organized weight loss program. You don't have to buy a pre-packaged food because human body needs over 100 different nutrients. You cannot get it from any one food group or one meal. When somebody else gives you the diet, how does that person know what nutrients your body needs at any one meal? Yeah, they don't. Okay, so as far as, uh, do, you, do you see like the sort of nutritional, like, um, like vitamins and minerals, is this what you're talking about or, or more so like the macronutrients? Like, like how, how big of an importance, I guess I'm asking is like, you know, the ratio of, of how much fat versus carbohydrates versus protein, or do you, do you really just not look at that too much and really focus on, on the grain consumption? Let me answer it this way. If you look at toddlers, two to six years old, you'll observe three things. One, they will not eat unless they are hungry. Second, they will pick and choose. If you give them 10 items, they may not eat all of them. They will pick and choose. Third, once they are done, they could care less how much is left on the plate. Essentially, they decide when to eat, what to eat, how much to eat. And they grow up normally. If they can do it, they have no clue what a vitamin is, mineral is, how much it is, what food group it is. If they can do it, why can't we? We overcomplicate it, huh? Right. Okay. And and you mentioned you mentioned cancer. How does how does the sort of grain consumption was it grain consumption specifically uh, that kind of elevates the the risk of cancer? Not the risk of, well, you have to make a differentiation between a cancer cell and cancer. When I say cancer cell, every cancer starts with the cancer stem cell. That's a mother cell that produces baby cells, which are also of the same propensity to keep dividing. That is cancer. The cancer stem cell is formed in our body every 10 years or so. It's a normal occurrence. 
Do you know when we have the maximum number of precancerous cells in our body? When we are in the mother's womb, in the fetal stage. Why? In a matter of 10 months, one single cell, which is called the zygote, formed after the fertilization of the egg, one single cell has to produce 30 trillion cells, 30 plus, within a matter of 10 months. So they are multiplying fast and they make mistakes. Each mistake in the genetic code is called a mutation. So they have lots of mutated cells and nature knows that. And we have the capacity through the immune system to either repair the mutation or the cell has self-destruct or there are killer cells, immune system cells that will destroy, hunt down and destroy cancer cells. So you may have, some of them may escape. 99% of those are destroyed before you're born. But a few of them may escape. That does not mean they have to become cancer. In order for them to multiply, you need to have a signal to multiply. You need a source of energy. And you need raw materials to construct a new cell. The cancer cell, cancer stem cell, uses glucose not only to produce energy, but also to, to fabricate materials for construction of a new cell. So the more you feed them glucose, the faster they multiply. And the faster they multiply, the less the chance of the immune system to kill them. So that is why we are seeing an increase in the incidence of cancer all around the world, because we are consuming more and more grains, which are feeding the cancer cell with glucose. Right. So do you see uh, like sort of high fat diets or just eliminating grains uh, as, as a big key in sort of preventing these, uh, I guess, precancerous or cancerous cells from, from kind of developing into full-blown cancer? Let me answer it this way. The Native Americans, the incidence of certain types of cancer right now is higher than that in the white population. In the year 1900, when they were first brought to the reservations, the doctors did a health check and found very few, if any, cancer patients. So the Royal College of Physicians from London through Columbia University did a study. And first they thought maybe there are not enough older people, but they found for 100,000 population, the Native Americans were 10 times more in number above age 95 compared to the white population at that time and they practically had no cancer. And they even termed, oh, Native Americans are immune to cancer. But if they were immune at that time, why are they having higher than normal incidence now? The only difference is the Native Americans moved from one food source to another. They did not stay in one place to cultivate grains. While they were marching to the reservation, they were given fry bread. And 
they had free access to grain-based foods. In 1984, this is back to the connection between grains and diabetes. And a researcher in Australia took 10 aborigines with diabetes on oral medication tablets, asked them, can you go to the bush and live like your ancestors? When they did that, within eight weeks, they lost weight, their blood sugar came down, they didn't have to take any more diabetic medications. Why? They ate everything else, fruits, nuts, grain, uh, um, animal products, except they did not have any cultivated grains. So it can provide the fuel for not only for cancer cells, but also increase the incidence of type 2 diabetes. So we can control this. Just to answer one more point, right now we have 400,000 adults who are childhood cancer survivors. Many of them have late effects of treatment based on how much they received in chemotherapy or radiation. Suppose we can use less medication when they have the cancer. Suppose we can control the growth of the cancer. How better they will be later on? They don't have to suffer as much side effects. So these are the things that I'm looking at. Awesome. Well, Dr. Putulil, um, we're, we're coming up onto the end of the show, but I think would be an interesting kind of last thing to ask you what, you know, if there was, if there was a single area or, or single sort of research study that, that you would like to see happen right now that you think really needs to be to happen to either explain to better help our understanding of either uh, kind of cancer metabolism or, or type two diabetes, what would you like to, what would you like to see? Let me, preface this this way. In my view, if nature meant grains for humans, we would have had beaks and the ability to digest the chaff. So with endocrinologists, all I'm asking is prove what you are preaching, that there is insulin resistance through logic, mechanism, and measurement. To the cancer specialist, all I'm saying is, yes, we need to treat cancer, but suppose we can reduce the amount of medication. Let us do that. Let us control the cancer growth at the same time, because in the long term, it will benefit the patient. Awesome. Finally, each person has to be in charge of his or her own nutrition. Don't give it to anybody else. Awesome. Well, I, I think those, those are the people that, that listen to the show. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I, I think taking our health into our own hands is something that I think most people have realized is something that we need to do. So, awesome. Well, Dr. Putilil, uh, if people wanted to find out more about your work, where would you direct them to? My books are available. There are four books on Amazon. 
they can follow me on Instagram or Facebook, Dr. John on Health, or they can go to my website, drjohnonhealth.com. And I have animation videos explaining obesity, type two diabetes, and cancer. And I'm going to put a new one about childhood cancer on my website. Awesome, sweet. Well, uh, Dr. Putilil, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, and for those listeners who did enjoy the show today, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, or Roscoe's Wetsuit. You can also listen to audio versions of the podcast available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and just about anywhere else you can find audio podcasts. And we're also just now launching Roscoe's Wetsuit Premium, uh, which is something that you can find at patreon.com slash Roscoe's Wetsuit. Um, more details coming about this, but there's some, there's going to be some really cool exclusive content on there for you guys. All right. Well, Dr. Putilil, again, thank you so much uh, for your time today. Thank you. For, thank you, Mr. Boston. Absolutely.